I'm becoming more and more convinced that God longs to give us what I would say is a holy ambition for his work. And he longs for us to be equipped with something that would motivate us, a passion that would drive us and strengthen us and help us overcome the different trials and the different points of obstacles and challenges that we may be confronted as we seek to accomplish the assignments he has created us uniquely for. God longs to give us ambition for his work, for the assignments he has created us uniquely for. And, uh, you know, this, this idea of ambition, it actually has, if we really think about it, it has kind of a bit of a negative connotation, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think a lot of times we might think of it in terms of a selfish ambition. And we may be more accustomed to hearing about different people in their desire to strive for something or to pursue something or to achieve something that is more out of a selfish motive. They do some rather foolish, foolish things and end up hurting themselves, suffering some severe consequences and hurting others. We might hear about this, read about different people getting arrested or other people suffering under their own selfish ambition and how it destroyed so much. Or, or maybe we may be more accustomed to seeing it illustrated in modern-day films. And we may be familiar with a film that uh, shall not be named that I haven't seen. <laughs> we know Leonardo DiCaprio was recently in it. A film that documents, or maybe we've read different articles about the true story on which this film was based on. It documents what it might look like for somebody's selfish ambition to take them to a place where they, they have no problem taking advantage of other people. They have no problem taking other people's resource and money and using their own trust that they leveraged out for their own pleasure. And we see what a destructive route that takes, doesn't it? And how harmful that could become to so many people. And some of us have actually experienced that. Some of us have experienced the harm other people's ambition, their drive, has actually left us nothing but hurt and full of pain. And, or, you know, we've, we are very familiar with that. But on the other hand, I would say ambition has a positive side to it as well. I think a lot of us may be more familiar, especially in this season of our year, where some of us may be tuning in nightly to recognize other people who are pursuing their ambitions that are very good. And we may be tuning in to NBC and watching different people's stories and hearing how sacrificial and how focused and how disciplined and how, and we start to hear and we start to get pulled in by these athletes' stories in their quest to achieve their ambition to get a gold medal for themselves and their country, and it inspires us, right? It moves us to see people achieve something with such, ah, such goodness that comes out of it, right? Others of us may have experienced, we may be a product of other people's ambition. We may know people in our own history and our own family background in which they were decided, they made a decision that was very self-sacrificing and they decided they were going to look to move a, from a place that they were very familiar with, a culture, a land they were from, and they decided to uproot themselves and move to another country, another place to start afresh, to have the ambition of providing something good, something better for those that they were going to bring into the world. I know I myself am a product of that ambition. And what a sacrificial ambition it was and is. 
And so it has a tremendous capacity to provide great amount of pain or great amount of good. And I'd like to suggest that God longs to fill us with ambition for his work, the best work, because it has nothing but good in its potential. When it's properly harnessed, when it has a healthy anchor in what he longs to do through us, it has great potential to do good. And this is why I, I love the scriptures personally, because every time I look at the different people that interact with Jesus or that interact with God, what I see are people who are portrayed as real with mixed motives and contradictions and different ambitions that would not be necessarily the best ambitions. And yet it never pushes God away from stepping into their lives and inviting them in to his work and inviting them to redirect themselves, their goals towards what he is longing to do. And this is what happens. And this is what I always just enjoy to read and see is that every single time people decide to respond favorably to God, some pretty amazing things happen. And I'm convinced God longs to do that even now, today, in our midst. And one of the men that we're going to take a look at, one of these people that God interacted with, his name was Saul when he first appeared on the scriptures. And we're going to be spending some time with him. He later became the Apostle Paul, but... You know, we, we're going to spend some weeks with him. But I, I just thought it would be good for us to kind of refresh ourselves in terms of how he came to know Jesus and what happened. Because he was a man who had been radically altered by the Lord. But when we first hear of him, when we first hear what he is, what is inside of him, what is driving him, it's actually pretty scary. I asked him to put this up there, actually. In Acts 9, in this one passage, the first two verses, we're told this is our introduction to Saul's motivation, to what's happening. We're told that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. Can you give me the authority to go all the way up to Damascus? And anyone, he says, so that if, if he found any belonging to the way, this derogatory term used for anybody seeking to follow Jesus, those, those followers of the way, if I find any of them, whether they be men or women, give me the authority that I might bring them back bound to Jerusalem. This was an outcome of his ambition, a misdirected zeal, he would later call it to honor God. And out of his misdirected passion to honor God, he ends up stepping into a wholly inappropriate way to do that. And he becomes filled, consumed with his desire to make sure that this way would not be a viable option for anybody, anybody else. And then on this path, as he is going up to Damascus, on this road, on his horse, with his men with him, charged with these orders, something pretty miraculous happens. And we're told that Jesus ends up revealing himself to Saul with a blinding light, knocks him off his horse. And Saul comes down, immediately struck blind from the brightness of it. And he hears this voice, which paraphrased, basically comes down to this. Jesus talking to Saul and saying, Saul, Saul, why are you fighting me? You can't win. Why don't you join me instead? And incredibly shaken to his core, he gets up, blinded and humbled. He makes his way. The other men, having heard what Jesus had said and having not seen the light, help him 
make his way over to the place where he was supposed to arrive at. A friend of his, his name is Judas, not Iscariot. And he stays there and he goes into a room and as he makes his way into a guest room where she's staying in, we're told that he refused to eat for three days and three nights. All the while pondering the implications of what he had happened. Jesus is actually everything he said he was. And what does this mean for me and my people? What does this mean for, for all of humanity? And as he's processing this in these three days, we're told that Jesus ends up stepping into Ananias' prayers. Another man who believed in him who lived in Damascus. And he goes into Ananias' prayers and he says, Ananias, yes, uh, yes, Lord. And this is just more paraphrase, but we would read it in Acts 9. He goes and says, remember, do you, have you heard of that man, Saul? He says, yeah, yeah, I've heard of Saul. Okay, I want you to go over. He's staying nearby here. I want you to go find him and I want you to let him know that I'm going to do something in his life. And Ananias reacts to how you and I would have reacted. He says, are you sure, uh, Saul? I mean, I think he's charged to come and arrest us. He's, he's actually here to take us away, bound to Jerusalem. I don't think that's a good idea, God. And then God says, actually, Ananias, that wasn't, um, that wasn't a suggestion. That was a command. And if you open up your handout, we'll go ahead and step into what happens after. In Acts 9, verse 15, we're told that the Lord decides to let Ananias know how serious he was about this. And I just love how this unfolds. He, he says to him, the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go. You must go. For he, being Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish faith, and kings, those in power and authority, and the children of Israel, your own brethren. That is why I want you to go. Because we can almost hear him say it this way. Ananias, what you see is a man filled with anger and hate. But what I see is a man that I have uniquely framed and created for this assignment, for this time, right now. And you must go let him know that. This is why he was made the way he was made. He is my instrument. And we're told that after that, he says, now, just so we're understanding, Ananias, he's not getting off like Scott Free, verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And we're told in 17 that having heard this, Ananias then departed and entered the house. He made his way over to where this man was staying. He, you could imagine knocking on the door. Hi, yes, uh, uh, my name is Ananias. Is, is a man named Saul here uh, coming up from Jerusalem? Yes, he's actually staying maybe in one of the guest rooms. And he would be led over and he would see you to enter the room. And, and there would be Saul, most likely, not able to see, praying, thinking. And we're told that Ananias steps into where Saul is at. And he laying his hands on him, he says something to him. This man who he was gravely afraid of, he now refers to him as something different. He says, Brother Saul, my brother, the Lord Jesus who, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, the man who just interrupted your path in the direction your life was taking, he has sent me so that you may regain your sight now that you see, and that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit, that God's Spirit would enter you. And we're told that at that very moment, moment in verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. 
And as he regains his sight and he starts looking around and he sees who Ananias is, we can start to see the effect of what had happened this last three days. We start to see the effect of what happened to him on the road to Damascus because the very first thing he, he does is he arose and he was, he, we could see it, we could almost hear him. He, he go, Ananias, will you baptize me? He was baptized, which we know is a public declaration saying, I love Jesus. And I belong to him now. And this cannot be overstated. That from that moment on, Paul's ambition had been radically altered. From that moment where he chose to publicly identify himself with Jesus, it was like an unrelenting force where he simply never looked back. He came back to where he was saying, and we're told in verse 19 that he took food and he was strengthened. And if we were to continue reading, we would know that he continued to investigate everything that Jesus meant. He continued to find out what the implications were. And immediately, almost several days after this event, he ends up going to the local synagogue. And he ends up telling the people at the synagogue who had expected to receive him with different motives and different reasons. He ends up telling them, listen, I met Jesus. And he's the way, he's the one we've been looking for. He's the one the scriptures speak about. He's the Messiah. And he starts speaking about the one whose grace is immeasurable instead of arresting those who proclaim him. And an amazing change happens. And in that midst of this conversation, some people start believing. He starts convincing people that Jesus actually is who he said he was. And other people start getting upset and angry. And something of a controversy comes up. And this man who was riding on his horse with different men with authority to arrest others had to leave on a basket, being lowered at night because his former friends had now become his enemies. And his life was in danger. And he had to go and escape. And he does for a good amount of time. But what we know is that he continued to allow his ambition to be directed towards God's work. And he devoted himself for the rest of his life to make sure that he allowed this to continue in his life through him. And Here's the amazing thing. 22 years later, over two, two decades later, after having done three different journeys throughout the Mediterranean, throughout the Roman Empire, after having done an enormous amount of work, he is writing a letter to a group of Christians in Rome. He writes to these Romans, and he decides to let them know, listen, this is how I have reconciled my Jewish faith with who Jesus is and all the implications that he has for all of humanity. Because he is the one, he is the one that the human heart cries for. And as he is describing this amazing letter to them, he gets to the end of this letter. And in the 15th chapter, at the end of his letter, he decides to let them know, you have, maybe you have heard of my reputation. Maybe you have heard of everything that's happened through my life. And I just want you to know, this is the engine inside of my soul. And he decides in a very transparent way to reveal himself. This is my heart. This is what has been motivating me. And I'd love for us to just walk through this. In Romans 15, he says to them, listen, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. 
22 years later, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. The second half of my life, and since I have met Jesus from then till now, man, I am just so proud. And just so you understand, it, I'm not trying to brag here. I'm not trying to say anything that is of my own credit. In fact, we can almost hear it immediately in verse 18. He says, no, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Can you hear the contrast of tones? A man who had walked into Damascus breathing threats and murder. 22 years later, writing about, listen, I can't take credit for it. This is what God has done through me. This is what he has done through me. Listen, I, I, and, and, and he has done it to bring Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish faith, to obedience by word and deed. It had actually has been more than just words spoken. They, their lives have changed. He says, listen, and, and you maybe have heard of this in verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, miracles have happened. I can't explain it. I can only say it, that it has been miracles, that God has done it. And, and he says, listen, he says, and this has all been done by the power of the Spirit of God. I can't claim any credit. Only God deserves the credit for everything that has been done. And he says, listen, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to this town whose name is really hard to uh, pronounce, <laughs> I have fulfilled the God ministry of the gospel of Christ. He's, what is he saying? He's saying, listen, from Jerusalem all the way around the known Roman Empire, he has fueled me with such passion and unrelenting tenacity that no matter what obstacle or struggle or conflict or harm has come my way, he has helped me do this. He has helped me complete the ministry of the gospel. And then and then he says, now, just to be absolutely clear, this is how I have responded. And here's that word. In verse 20, thus, because of everything he has done in me, thus, I make it my ambition. I make it my ambition. I have not made it. I make it. Every day I'm awake, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. I have signed up to do God's work, and I will do it as long as I have breath. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. And I don't go where Christ has already been named. No, that's not what I'm interested in, lest I build on someone else's foundation. I go where people don't know about him. I go where they haven't heard about Jesus, and I let them know, listen, there is one whose love and grace is unimaginable, is better than what we could think of. And he's real, and he's here. And he sent me for you. That's what a powerful dynamic. I just, you know, there's a couple things we need to know about Paul. Firstly, we need to recognize that he was from his childhood, was raised within the Jewish uh, religious training under Gamaliel, which was regarded as one of the best teachers within his faith. He was raised to be a part of the Jewish courts. And he had a breadth of knowledge that was just unparalleled for his day. And in another sense, he was raised in a town called Tarsus, which was familiar. It was a town of commerce, and it was Greek and Roman. And so he had an understanding for both Jewish culture and Roman and Greek culture, which gave him the ability to go and move throughout the empire and not feel out of place. He understood how things worked. 
In addition to this, he also had a skill that was lucrative for his day. He was able to make tents. He was a tent maker, which secured him a, a means to, to have a living no matter where he went. And all of these things that he had within him, coupled with his own personality and his amazing drive, caused him to do a tremendous amount of work. In those 22 years, while he's, as he's writing to the Romans, he wasn't exaggerating. He had done an amazing amount of work. In fact, if we, if we were to think about this, he went throughout village and town and city planting churches effectively. And I'm just going to say these cities, we, it may not know, mean a whole lot to us, but each one is a different people group. Each one is a different culture. Each one has its own context. Each one has its own dynamic and dangers. And we're told that in Ephesus and Corinth and Galatia, Antioch, Philippi, from Turkey all the way to Greece, all the way to, around the Roman Empire, Crete and Thessalonica, he established churches. What an amazing thing he did. And not only that, he, in these 22 years, he managed within each of these plants, which, by the way, would, it would define him as a true entrepreneur, wouldn't it? He went where no one else was going, and he started something, and it lasted. He was able to raise up leadership in each community. He was able to make sure that he, he communicated with all of them. In fact, the 13 letters that we have in the New Testament that were penned by him, were because he was concerned for each of these different communities throughout the Roman Empire. An amazing work that was done through him. He was also personally a part of people coming to receive healing and freedom from captivity, relationships being restored, and he got to see people come to know Jesus himself. This ambition produce a tremendous wake of life and goodness. And it has a lot to do with who Paul was, how he was made. But as we think about this idea of ambition for God's work, I'd like us to consider everything that Paul described through a different lens of how maybe we can apply it in our own lives. Firstly, I'd like to say that God's plans, God's plans and our ambition they intersect most naturally when, when we are open to his direction. They intersect most naturally when we are open to his direction. See, Saul was a man who was driven, ambitious, passionate, zealous. He was trained. He had an education. He had a trade. He had skills. He had understanding. But can you hear me? It did not make sense, and it did not create real health and life until he became open to the interruption Jesus had on the road up to Damascus. And only when he decided to respond and sign up to what Jesus invited him into did everything about his life start to really make sense. Everything about his upbringing, everything about his heritage, everything about his knowledge, everything about his experiences started to find their home when he started to say, God, I'm going to be ambitious for what you are asking me to do. Can you hear this? That in our lives, where we have been, what we have experienced, the upbringing we have had, the resources, the skills, the personality, the different things, the wounds that we have been inflicted on us that have become healed by him or maybe are in the process of it, they become, they become tools, they become 
become. Maybe they weren't right. Maybe they weren't his best for us at the time. But now he's able to do something pretty amazing. He's able to use them for his work. And they start to make sense. You give me empathy for certain people. I have mercy for others. I have understanding in certain directions. You, I understand why you have made me the way you have made me, God. See, that happens. We find why we were framed and created the way we were created when we become ambitious for his work. God. In practical ways, I like to think that we find God's plan for our lives when, when three different things overlap. One, I would say, is our passions. What, when it is spoken of, when it is mentioned, when it is said, something inside of us lights up or something inside of us just will not leave us alone because it is directly connected to who we are. And we are so passionate about this. Nothing can quench it. And yet that is coupled with the needs around us. In the different ways that those overlap. Usually that's as far as we go. But I will say that those will always be missing something if they are missing God's guidance. His leading voice. And then we're able to combine all three levels of who we are. Our passions, the needs around us, and something we understand, start to understand of what God's leading is in our lives. We start to hear and feel our sweet spot. This, God, is why you have made me. And this is the reason I'm supposed to move into this. This is what you have created me to do. And it is a, a, an amazing thing. See, it naturally intersects when we become open to his guidance in our lives, his direction in our lives. Secondly, I would say that ambition for God's work will, will keep us, will keep us and protect us from destructive behavior and lead us to greater fulfillment in our lives. See, Saul was a man misdirected in his zeal, wasn't he? He was a man who, out of his desire, sincere desire to honor God, was ended up moving into habits and moving into a realm of his personality that was just off balance and destructive. But it was only when he allowed God to harness him and he responded to what God was inviting him into that he ended up moving away from this type of behavior. Can you hear the difference? A man who was filled with murder and threats now filled with humility and gratitude, now filled with deep satisfaction. So when we get, become ambitious for what God is doing in us and around us, what ends up happening is we become a little bit more courageous and we end up saying, you know what, God, I don't want to undermine your grace in my life and I don't want to just take this for granted, so I pray you help me. Give me the courage to start addressing certain things in my life. And what we would normally have swept underneath the rug or, or just pretended it wasn't really there, we start to get something inside of us just won't let us be until we start addressing certain things. Because he ends up saying, you know what, let's move you away from what is harmful and let's move you towards what is best for you. And we end up finding this unrelenting passion from his spirit to our soul that gives us the capacity to overcome our past failures, our discouragement. It gives us the capacity to feel healing come in our wounds. And it's an amazing thing because something else also happens. We start to discover deep, deep satisfaction in what happens. And we could read it in verse 17. 
We see Saul, who is now Paul, says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work. I am just so deeply satisfied with this work God has done through me. I am satisfied with his work he has done through me. From that moment, the second half of my life, this is what has fulfilled me. And some of us, listen, we may have experienced God's grace to us, but can you hear this? There is such a different dynamic when that grace becomes not just to us, but it ends up moving us into a place where it moves through us and it starts affecting other people. And it starts touching other people. And we, got, we get to stand there. And there's just no comparison to the satisfaction we receive when we start to recognize, God, your grace doesn't just reach out to me. But then it, 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 you end up using me. Even someone like me. What an amazing grace. You take a man such as I, or a woman, and you use us to touch others. And those moments that we sense that, they become treasures to us, don't they? They become moments where we say, God, let me never forget this. How you are able to do something so amazing through such a contradiction, through somebody with, filled with so many different weaknesses, points of friction in, in my inner life, and yet you use it. Because what happens is that healthy ambition for God Healthy ambition for God has the potential to bless a whole lot of people. See, healthy ambition for God, it has the potential to bless a lot of people. And the key to this is really to figure out a way to allow God access to our lives in whatever season we may be in. And whether we may be in in whatever phase of life we may be in to allow him access to us and to stay open to what he is doing in our lives and to allow him to fuel us and strengthen us. And what happens is over the arc of our lives, what we're able to see is we're able to see, God, you've helped me stay faithful when no one else was watching in these details. And that has led me to be able to be faithful when everyone was watching. Or maybe it's, you know what, God, you, you, when we stay faithful to our key relationships and our core commitments, what happens is people that we may not even know yet end up getting blessed. See, here's what I, I, I think is, is pretty easy to say. I don't think Paul had any idea of the impact his ambition for God's work would have. I, have, I, just, I just don't think he thought to himself 2,000 years from now, all over the world, people are going to be reading words that I have written and they're going to be strengthened by them and they're going to see God work through them. What he was consumed with was his concern for the people in his immediate vicinity, wasn't he? He was concerned with the different churches he was a part of. He was concerned with God's assignment for him. But here's what happens when we become faithful to the finite assignments, to the small things that God is asking us to step into and to become more ambitious for. You know what happens is our limited life, our limited amount of years that we spend on this planet end up becoming absorbed into the larger canvas of God's work. And it ends up blessing a ton of people. And we just don't know. I wonder how many people down the line, 22 years from now, will be blessed because we decided to say, God, give me ambition for your work. 
help me stay faithful. When I want to quit, help me stay faithful. When I feel weak and weary, help me stay faithful. When everything is on the line and I want to pull back, help me stay faithful, God. And I wonder how many of us will get to the, maybe our final days and we'll be able to look back and we'll say, maybe not perfectly, but oh God, how proud and how happy I am at the work you have done. Because I was willing. Because I was, let us never underestimate the impact our ambition for God's work will have. It is an amazing thing. And an amazing thing. Something he longs for us to participate in. In a moment, we're going to, the band's going to come back up and we're going to receive our time of giving and have this closing song, which I, I just love. I love the groove. I love the song. But the opening verse says this, I, I want a fire that could burn me clean, light the sky with black-eyed dreams, and let my soul fly. And let my soul fly. May he give us ambition that will both cleanse us and ignite us. May he do an amazing thing through our lives. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you are... Uh, you're a God who is just never limited by our own contradictions or weaknesses. Thank you for your grace, God, that always continually invites us to receive but also to participate. I pray that you would give us courage. I pray that you would give us somewhat of a fire in our soul, an ambition for what you are doing in our midst. And I pray, God, that it would fuel us to such a degree that no obstacle, no trial, no point of discouragement is able to quiet down the strength of what you have assigned us to do. May we receive your pleasure in it. May we experience your wholeness through it, God. We pray for godly ambition to motivate us. In Jesus' name, amen.